The Age of Reason, Volume 4, by Thomas Paine, 1737-1809. to Chapter 3. Conclusion This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Tomlinson In the former part of the Age of Reason, I have spoken of the three frauds, mystery, miracle, and prophecy, and as I have seen nothing in any of the answers to that work that in the least affects what I have there said upon those subjects, I shall not encumber this second part with additions that are not necessary. I have spoken also in the same work upon what is called revelation, and have shown the absurd misapplication of that term to the books of the Old Testament and the New, for certainly revelation is out of the question in reciting anything of which man has been the actor or the witness. That which man has done or seen needs no revelation to tell him he has done it or seen it, for he knows it already, nor to enable him to tell it or to write it. It is ignorance or imposition to apply the term revelation in such cases, yet the Bible and Testament are classed under this fraudulent description of being all revelation. Revelation, then, so far as the term has relation between God and man, can only be applied to something which God reveals of his will to man. But though the power of the Almighty to make such a communication is necessarily admitted, because to that power all things are possible, yet the thing so revealed, if anything ever was revealed, and which, by the by, it is impossible to prove, is revelation to the person only to whom it is made. His account of it to another is not revelation, and whoever puts faith in that account puts it in the man from whom the account comes, and that man may have been deceived, or may have dreamed it, or he may be an impostor and may lie. There is no possible criterion whereby to judge of the truth of what he tells, for even the morality of it would be no proof of revelation. In all such cases, the proper answer should be, when it is revealed to me, I will believe it to be revelation, but it is not and cannot be incumbent upon me to believe it to be revelation before. Neither is it proper that I should take the word of man as the word of God and put man in the place of God. This is the manner in which I have spoken of revelation in the former part of the age of reason, and which, whilst it reverentially admits revelation as a possible thing, because, as before said, to the Almighty all things are possible, it prevents the imposition of one man upon another, and precludes the wicked use of pretended revelation. But though, speaking for myself, I thus admit the possibility of revelation, I totally disbelieve that the Almighty ever did communicate anything to man, by any mode of speech, in any language, or by any kind of vision, 
or appearance or by any means which our senses are capable of receiving otherwise than by the universal display of himself in the works of the creation and by that repugnance we feel in ourselves to bad actions and disposition to good ones a fair parallel of the then unknown aphorism of kant two things fill the soul with wonder and reverence increasing ever more as i meditate more closely upon them the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me critique de practician vernunf kant's religious utterances at the beginning of the french revolution brought on him a royal mandate of silence because he had worked out from the moral law within a principle of human equality precisely similar to that which Paine had derived from his quaker doctrine of the inner light of every man about the same time Paine's writings were suppressed in england Paine did not understand german but kant though always independent in the formation of his opinions was evidently well acquainted with the literature of the revolution in america england and france editor the most detestable wickedness the most horrid cruelties and the greatest miseries that have afflicted the human race have had their origin in this thing called revelation or revealed religion it has been the most dishonourable belief against the character of the divinity the most destructive to morality and the peace and happiness of man that ever was propagated since man began to exist it is better far better that we admitted if it were possible a thousand devils to roam at large and to preach publicly the doctrine of devils if there were any such than that we permitted one such impostor and monster as moses joshua samuel and the bible prophets to come with the pretended word of god in his mouth and have credit among us whence arose all the horrible assassinations of whole nations of men women and infants with which the bible is filled and the bloody persecutions and tortures unto death and religious wars that since that time have laid europe in blood and ashes whence arose they but from this impious thing called revealed religion and this monstrous belief that god has spoken to man the lies of the bible have been the cause of the one and the lies of the testament of the other some christians pretend that christianity was not established by the sword but of what period of time do they speak it was impossible that twelve men could begin with the sword they had not the power but no sooner were the professors of christianity sufficiently powerful to employ the sword than they did so and the stake and faggot too and mahomet could not do it sooner by the same spirit that peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servant if the story be true he would cut off his head and the head of his master had he been able besides this christianity grounds itself originally upon the hebrew bible and the bible was established altogether by the sword and that in the worst use of it not to terrify but to extirpate the jews made no converts they butchered all the bible is the sire of the new testament 
and both are called the word of God. The Christians read both books, the ministers preach from both books, and this thing called Christianity is made up of both. It is then false to say that Christianity was not established by the sword. The only sect that has not persecuted are the Quakers, and the only reason that can be given for it is that they are rather deists than Christians. They do not believe much about Jesus Christ, and they call the scriptures a dead letter. This is an interesting and correct testimony as to the beliefs of the early Quakers, one of whom was Payne's father, editor. Had they called them by a worse name, they had been nearer the truth. It is incumbent on every man who reverences the character of the Creator and who wishes to lessen the catalogue of artificial miseries and remove the cause that has sown persecutions thick among mankind to expel all ideas of a revealed religion as a dangerous heresy and an impious fraud. What is it that we have learned from this pretended thing called revealed religion? Nothing that is useful to man, and everything that is dishonourable to his maker. What is it the Bible teaches us? Rapine, cruelty and murder. What is it the Testaments teaches us? To believe that the Almighty committed debauchery with a woman engaged to be married, and the belief of this debauchery is called faith. As to the fragments of morality that are irregularly and thinly scattered in those books, they make no part of this pretended thing revealed religion. They are the natural dictates of conscience and the bonds by which society is held together and without which it cannot exist, and are nearly the same in all religions and in all societies. The Testament teaches nothing new upon this subject and where it attempts to exceed, it becomes mean and ridiculous. The doctrine of not retaliating injuries is much better expressed in Proverbs, which is a collection as well from the Gentiles as the Jews, than it is in the Testament. It is there said, 25.2.1, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. According to what is called Christ's Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, where, among some other and good things, a great deal of this feigned morality is introduced, it is there expressly said that the doctrine of forbearance, or of not retaliating injuries, was not any part of the doctrine of the Jews. But as this doctrine is found in Proverbs, it must, according to that statement, have been copied from the Gentiles, from whom Christ had learned it. Those men whom Jewish and Christian idolaters have abusively called heathen had much better and clearer ideas of justice and morality than are to be found in the Old Testament, so far as it is Jewish, or in the New. The answer of Solon on the question, which is the most perfect popular government, has never been exceeded by any man since his time as containing a maxim of political morality. That, says he, where the least injury done to the meanest individual is considered as an insult on the whole constitution. Solon lived about 500 years before Christ. 
author. But when it is said, as in the testament, if a man smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, it is assassinating the dignity of forbearance, and sinking man into a spaniel. Loving of enemies is another dogma of feigned morality, and has besides no meaning. It is incumbent on man, as a moralist, that he does not revenge an injury, and it is equally as good in a political sense, for there is no end to retaliation. Each retaliates on the other, and calls it justice. But to love in proportion to the injury, if it could be done, would be to offer a premium for a crime. Besides, the word enemies is too vague and general to be used in a moral maxim, which ought always to be clear and defined like a proverb. If a man be the enemy of another from mistake and prejudice, as in the case of religious opinions, and sometimes in politics, that man is different to an enemy at heart with a criminal intention, and it is incumbent upon us, and it contributes also to our own tranquillity, that we put the best construction upon a thing that it will bear. But even this erroneous motive in him makes no motive for love on the other part, and to say that we can love voluntarily and without a motive is morally and physically impossible. Morality is injured by prescribing to it duties that, in the first place, are impossible to be performed, and if they could be, would be productive of evil, or, as before said, be premiums for crime. The maxim of doing as we would be done unto does not include the strange doctrine of loving enemies, for no man expects to be loved himself for his crime or for his enmity. Those who preach this doctrine of loving their enemies are in general the greatest persecutors, and they act consistently by so doing, for the doctrine is hypocritical, and it is natural that hypocrisy should act the reverse of what it preaches. For my own part, I disown the doctrine and consider it as a feigned or fabulous morality. Yet the man does not exist that can say, I have persecuted him, or any man, or any set of men, either in the American Revolution or in the French Revolution, or that I have, in any case, returned evil for evil. But it is not incumbent on man to reward a bad action with a good one, or to return good for evil, and whenever it is done, it is a voluntary act and not a duty. It is also absurd to suppose that such doctrine can make any part of a revealed religion. We imitate the moral character of the Creator by forbearing with each other, for he forbears with all. But this doctrine would imply that he loved man, not in proportions as he was good, but as he was bad. If we consider the nature of our condition here, we must see there is no occasion for such a thing as revealed religion. What is it we want to know? Does not the creation, the universe we behold, preach to us the existence of an almighty power that governs and regulates the whole? And is not the evidence that this creation holds out to our senses infinitely stronger than anything we can read in a book, 
that any impostor might make and call the word of God. As for morality, the knowledge of it exists in every man's conscience. Here we are. The existence of an almighty power is sufficiently demonstrated for us, though we cannot conceive, as it is impossible we should, the nature and manner of its existence. We cannot conceive how we came here ourselves, and yet we know for a fact that we are here. We must know also that the power that called us into being can, if he please, and when he pleases, call us to account for the manner in which we have lived here, and therefore without seeking any other motive for the belief, it is rational to believe that he will, for we know beforehand that he can. The probability or even possibility of the thing is all that we ought to know, for if we knew it as a fact, we should be the mere slaves of terror. Our belief would have no merit, and our best actions no virtue. Deism then teaches us, without the possibility of being deceived, all that is necessary or proper to be known. The creation is the Bible of the deist. He there reads, in the handwriting of the Creator himself, the certainty of his existence, and the immutability of his power, and all other Bibles and Testaments are to him forgeries. The probability that we may be called to account hereafter will, to reflecting minds, have the influence of belief, for it is not our belief or disbelief that can make or unmake the fact. As this is the state we are in, and which it is proper we should be in, as free agents, it is the fool only, and not the philosopher, nor even the prudent man, that will live as if there were no God. But the belief of a God is so weakened by being mixed with the strange fable of the Christian creed, and with the wild adventures related in the Bible, and the obscurity and obscene nonsense of the Testament, that the mind of man is bewildered as in a fog. Viewing all these things in a confused mass, he confounds fact with fable, and as he cannot believe all, he feels a disposition to reject all. But the belief of a God is a belief distinct from all other things, and ought not to be confounded with any. The notion of a trinity of gods has enfeebled the belief of one God. A multiplication of beliefs acts as a division of belief, and in proportion as anything is divided, it is weakened. Religion by such means becomes a thing of form instead of fact, of notion instead of principle. Morality is banished to make room for an imaginary thing called faith, and this faith has its origin in a supposed debauchery. A man is preached instead of a god. An execution is an object for gratitude. The preachers daub themselves with the blood, like a troop of assassins, and pretend to admire the brilliancy it gives them. They preach a humdrum sermon on the merits of the execution, then praise Jesus Christ for being executed, and condemn the Jews for doing it. A man, by hearing all this nonsense lumped and preached together, confounds the God of the creation with the imagined God of the Christians, and lives as if there were none. Of all the systems of religion that ever were invented, there is none more derogatory to the Almighty more unedifying to man, more repugnant to reason, and more contradictory in itself than this thing called Christianity. Too absurd for belief, too impossible to convince, 
and too inconsistent for practice, it renders the heart torpid or produces only atheists and fanatics. As an engine of power, it serves the purpose of despotism, and as a means of wealth, the avarice of priests. But so far as respects the good of man in general, it leads to nothing here or hereafter. The only religion that has not been invented, and that has in it every evidence of divine originality, is pure and simple deism. It must have been the first, and will probably be the last that man believes. But pure and simple deism does not answer the purpose of despotic governments. They cannot lay hold of religion as an engine but by mixing it with human inventions and making their own authority apart. Neither does it answer the avarice of priests, but by incorporating themselves and their functions with it and becoming, like the government, a party in the system. It is this that forms the otherwise mysterious connection of church and state, the church human and the state tyrannic. Were a man impressed as fully and strongly as he ought to be with the belief of a god, his moral life would be regulated by the force of belief. He would stand in awe of God and of himself, and would not do the thing that could not be concealed from either. To give this belief the full opportunity of force, it is necessary that it acts alone. This is deism. But when, according to the Christian Trinitarian scheme, one part of God is represented by a dying man, and another part, called the Holy Ghost, by a flying pigeon, it is impossible that belief can attach itself to such wild conceits. The book called the Book of Matthew says, 3.16, that the Holy Ghost descended in the shape of a dove. It might as well have said a goose. The creatures are equally harmless, and the one is as much a nonsensical lie as the other. Acts 2, 2.3 says, that it descended in a mighty rushing wind, in the shape of cloven tongues. Perhaps it was cloven feet. Such absurd stuff is fit only for tales of witches and wizards. Author It has been the scheme of the Christian Church, and of all the other invented systems of religion, to hold man in ignorance of the Creator, as it is of government to hold him in ignorance of his rights. The systems of the one are as false as those of the other, and are calculated for mutual support. The study of theology as it stands in Christian churches is the study of nothing. It is founded on nothing. It rests on no principles. It proceeds by no authorities. It has no data. It can demonstrate nothing and admits of no conclusion. Not anything can be studied as a science without our being in possession of the principles upon which it is founded, and as this is not the case with Christian theology, it is therefore the study of nothing. Instead then of studying theology, as is now done, out of the Bible and Testament, the meanings of which books are always controverted, and the authenticity of which is disproved, it is necessary that we refer to the Bible of the creation. The principles we discover there are eternal and of divine origin, and they are the foundation of all the science that exists in the world and must be the foundation of theology. 
We can know God only through his works. We cannot have a conception of any one attribute, but by following some principle that leads to it. We have only a confused idea of his power if we have not the means of comprehending something of its immensity. We can have no idea of his wisdom, but by knowing the order and manner in which it acts. The principles of science lead to this knowledge, for the creator of man is the creator of science, and it is through that medium that man can see God, as it were, face to face. Could a man be placed in a situation and endowed with the power of vision to behold at one view and to contemplate deliberately the structure of the universe, to mark the movements of the several planets, the cause of their varying appearances, the unerring order in which they revolve, even to the remotest comment, their connection and dependence on each other, and to know the system of laws established by the Creator, that governs and regulates the whole. He would then conceive, far beyond what any church theology can teach him, the power, the wisdom, the vastness, the munificence of the Creator. He would then see that all the knowledge man has of science, and that all the mechanical arts by which he renders his situation comfortable here, are derived from that source. His mind, exalted by the scene, and convinced by the fact, would increase in gratitude as it increased in knowledge. His religion or his worship would become united with his improvement as a man. Any employment he followed that had connection with the principles of the creation, as everything of agriculture, of science, and the mechanical arts has, would teach him more of God and of the gratitude he owes to him than any theological Christian sermon he now hears. Great objects inspire great thoughts. Great munificence excites great gratitude. But the groveling tales and doctrines of the Bible and the Testament are fit only to excite contempt. Though man cannot arrive, at least in this life, at the actual scene I have described, he can demonstrate it, because he has knowledge of the principles upon which the creation is constructed. We know that the greatest works can be represented in model, and that the universe can be represented by the same means. The same principles by which we measure an inch or an acre of ground will measure to millions in extent. A circle of an inch diameter has the same geometrical properties as a circle that would circumscribe the universe. The same properties of a triangle that will demonstrate upon paper the course of a ship will do it on the ocean, and, when applied to what are called the heavenly bodies, will ascertain to a minute the time of an eclipse, though those bodies are millions of miles distant from us. This knowledge is of divine origin, and it is from the Bible of the creation that man has learned it, and not from the stupid Bible of the church that teaches man nothing. The Bible makers have undertaken to give us, in the first chapter of Genesis, an account of the creation, and in doing this they have demonstrated nothing but their ignorance. They make there to have been three days and three nights, evenings and mornings, before there was any sun, when it is the presence or absence of the sun that is the cause of day and night, and what is called his rising and setting, that of morning and evening. Besides, it is a puerile and pitiful idea to suppose the Almighty to say, 
let there be light it is the imperative manner of speaking that a conjurer uses when he says to his cups and balls presto be gone and most probably has been taken from it as moses and his rod is a conjurer and his wand longinus calls this expression the sublime and by the same rule the conjurer is sublime too for the manner of speaking is expressively and grammatically the same when authors and critics talk of the sublime they see not how nearly it borders on the ridiculous the sublime of the critics like some parts of edmund burke's sublime and beautiful is like a windmill just visible in a fog which imagination might distort into a flying mountain or an archangel or a flock of wild geese author all the knowledge man has of science and of machinery by the aid of which his existence is rendered comfortable upon earth and without which he would be scarcely distinguishable in appearance and condition from a common animal comes from the great machine and structure of the universe the constant and unwearied observations of our ancestors upon the movements and revolutions of the heavenly bodies in what are supposed to have been the early ages of the world have brought this knowledge upon earth it is not moses and the prophets nor jesus christ nor his apostles that have done it the almighty is the great mechanic of the creation the first philosopher and original teacher of all science let us then learn to reverence our master and not forget the labours of our ancestors had we at this day no knowledge of machinery and were it possible that man could have a view as i have before described of the structure and machinery of the universe he would soon conceive the idea of constructing some at least of the mechanical works we now have and the idea so conceived would progressively advance in practice or could a model of the universe such as is called an orrery be presented before him and put in motion his mind would arrive at the same idea such an object and such a subject would whilst it improved him in knowledge useful to himself as a man and a member of society as well as entertaining afford far better matter for impressing him with a knowledge of and a belief in the creator and of the reverence and gratitude that man owes to him than the stupid text of the bible and the testament from which be the talents of the preacher what they may only stupid sermons can be preached if man must preach let him preach something that is edifying and from the texts that are known to be true the bible of the creation is inexhaustible in texts every part of science whether connected with the geometry of the universe with the systems of animal and vegetable life or with the properties of inanimate matter is a text as well for devotion as for philosophy for gratitude as for human improvement it will perhaps be said that if such a revolution in the system of religion takes place every preacher ought to be a philosopher most certainly and every house of devotion a school of science it has been by wandering from the immutable laws of science and the light of reason and setting up an invented thing called revealed religion that so many wild and blasphemous conceits have been formed of the almighty 
The Jews have made him the assassin of the human species to make room for the religion of the Jews. The Christians have made him the murderer of himself and the founder of a new religion to supersede and expel the Jewish religion. And to find pretense and admission for these things, they must have supposed his power or his wisdom imperfect or his will changeable and the changeableness of the will is the imperfection of the judgment. The philosopher knows that the laws of the Creator have never changed with respect either to the principles of science or the properties of matter. Why then is it to be supposed they have changed with respect to man? I here close the subject. I have shown in all the foregoing parts of this work that the Bible and Testament are impositions and forgeries and I leave the evidence I have produced in proof of it to be refuted, if any one can do it, and I leave the ideas that are suggested in the conclusion of the work to rest on the mind of the reader, certain as I am that when opinions are free, either in matters of government or religion, truth will finally and powerfully prevail. End of The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine Chapter 3 Conclusion Recording by Peter Tomlinson